Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Galatians chapter 3. As we continue our study through this book, Galatians 3, we'll look at verses 10 to 14. A uh, fairly brief text, but full of a lot of things, more than we can probably uh, unpack even today. Galatians 3, 10 to 14. One of the greatest questions, I think, that has ever been asked, certainly one of the greatest uh, statements in the creeds, is, uh, is this first question of the Heidelberg Catechism that asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? This morning we're going to examine what that comfort is and what it is not. Let me read the text, Galatians 3.10. All who rely on observing the law are under curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The subject of this whole text, this whole book actually, but especially this section, is justification. So let me just quickly define it again. Justify is the verb form of the noun righteous. So to justify yourself is to do righteousness or to do justice or to make yourself righteous. And to justify someone else is to declare them to be righteous. Now since we're talking about our relationship with God, the issue is on what basis can we have such a right standing before God? On what basis will God declare us righteous? And ultimately that's all that matters. So concerning this issue, our text, I think, has two things to say. The first is this. You cannot earn God's approval. You cannot earn God's approval. Or the more theological way of saying that is you cannot be justified by keeping the law. Now, if you live a pretty good life, you will often feel justified. Your family and friends may openly, sincerely justify you, declare you righteous based on the good things that they see you doing. In fact, if you read your performance reviews at work, you may again find that you have been uh, uh, lavishly justified, declared more righteous than your associates. When I was in the military, performance reports were so inflated that It was an open secret that anything less than he walks on water was considered a negative report. We all knew it was a joke. Nonetheless, I love to read those glowing reviews and know that I was justified in the eyes of my commander. Even in our own hearts and minds, when we know we have miserably failed... Don't we often justify ourselves by remembering, well, others are much worse than we are. We're not so bad in comparison. And certainly, 
at our funeral, we will be justified. Declared to be righteous, whether we were or not. I've seldom seen anyone as angry as a friend of mine named Bob, who had just attended the funeral back in New Jersey. He just attended the funeral of his 41-year-old, unbelieving, alcoholic brother, and heard the pastor immortalize him as a saint. But you know, even those who are not so righteous often are justified in their eulogy. You see, we're accustomed to being justified based on how good we are, based on our performance. But if we honestly face the reality of God's righteousness, his holiness, we will get very uncomfortable. This is why people continue to redefine God into someone who just likes to make everyone happy. So that no matter what our behavior might be, hey, God's good with that, God loves me. But that's not the God of the Bible. I'm not saying God is mean or uncaring. That's not true. God is the opposite. He's infinite love. A a God who heaps blessing on his people. But God is not whatever we want him to be. He is a God of curses as well as blessings. We can see this vividly if we look at the Old Testament passage, uh, the, the source of the quotation in verse 10. Let me tell you about it. God's people, Israel... We're about to enter the promised land. God had delivered them from Egypt. He had, pers- he had preserved them through years of wandering in, in the desert. And now he was giving them the land he had promised to their forefathers. God had proven himself to be a God of love and mercy and faithfulness and blessing. But just before they enter, in Deuteronomy 27, God outlines an interesting activity for his people. When they enter the land, they're to, vo- to divide this group of people into two groups. And one group is to hike up the hill called Mount Ebal, and the other group is to hike up the facing hill called Mount Gerizim. And, and those, from those two facing positions, one group is to announce God's blessings, and the other group is to announce God's curses. So the group from Mount Gerizim said, Cursed is the man who carves an image or creates an idol. And the people said, Amen. Cursed is the man who dishonors his father and mother. And the people said, Amen. Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien or the fatherless or the widow. And the people all said, Amen. Cursed is the man who is sexually immoral. And he spells out several different kinds of sexual immorality. And all the people said, Amen. Cursed is the man who kills his neighbor secretly. And all the people said, Amen. And then the words quoted in our text in verse 10, Cursed is the man who does not do the words of this law. And the people said, Amen. So be it. Now this sounds rather harsh to our modern ears. But God is holy. And he defines what righteousness looks like. He is the righteous judge who will not look the other way at our sin. Even his gracious covenant with his people included not only promises of blessing when they were faithful, but threatened curses, rejection, if they dared to turn away from him. So though your good behavior may make you feel good, when you compare yourself with others, 
you will find no comfort when you stand before God based on your best efforts. You cannot earn God's approval. You cannot be justified by keeping God's law. Now, our text gives us two reasons why that's true, briefly. First, you cannot be justified by keeping the law because you haven't actually kept it well enough. I'm not denying that you're better than many others. I'm sure you are. You may be better than me at this. But that's not the issue. In verse 10, God gives us his standard, his cutoff point for a passing grade. And it's 100%. Cursed is everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law. It's not a misprint. James chapter 2 says the same thing. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, guilty of breaking the law. God's standard is not that we generally keep his law. His standard is that we keep every point of his law. But our text goes even further than that. It says, cursed is everyone who does not continually do everything written in the law. Oh, we have moments of greatness. But God demands unceasing, continual obedience. Uh, Let me put it in perspective. How many times a day do you think you might sin? Uh, Some moral lapse in your actions or perhaps your words, moment of anger, or even your thoughts. How many times a day? Let's be optimistic. Let's say, let's say you only, that would only happen to you maybe three times a day. Three times where there's something less than pure about your actions or your words or your thoughts. That probably makes you the holiest person I've ever met, by the way. Surely God must be pleased, huh? Well, before we uh, declare you righteous, let's do the math. Three sins a day, just figuring it out in my head, that's about a thousand sins a year. And let's say you live 50 years, that's 50,000 sins. 50,000 times your acts or words or thoughts were unacceptable to God. Do you really want to go into judgment with that kind of record to stand on? Do you really think that a holy, truly righteous judge will just ignore 50,000 infractions of his law? God's standard is that at every point in our life, we obey every detail of his law. And because that's not true of any of us, we cannot possibly think that we are justified by keeping God's law. That we can earn his approval. The other reason we cannot be justified by keeping the law is that Justification by our own works was never God's plan. God spoke through the prophet Habakkuk and said, The righteous shall live by faith. And then that statement is repeated several times in the New Testament. The righteous will live by faith. But as our text points out in verse 12, the law is not of faith. Instead, at the end of verse 12, Paul quotes in Leviticus 18, The man who does these things will live by them. In other words, the law is about doing. It's about performance. It's about works, not faith. 
But God's plan from the beginning is to justify, to accept, to declare righteous those who believe and trust him, though they don't deserve it. Not those who seek to establish their own righteousness where they don't need his mercy, establish it by a life of doing good deeds. You cannot earn God's approval. You cannot be justified by keeping the law, first of all, because it's not possible for you to do that well enough to earn God's favor, and secondly, because it is a wrong strategy from the beginning. God never intended for us to justify ourselves by law-keeping. Instead, God has always had a better plan, the plan of faith, not works, which brings us to our second point. (coughs) Come, rest your soul in Jesus. Rest your soul in Jesus. These days, people talk about faith in a very dynamic way, I guess, is one way to put it. There's a thought that there's power in in believing itself. The emphasis on the strength of the faith possessed by the believer. But the object of the faith doesn't seem to matter. Faith is thought thought of as an energy projected or or, or captured by the one who who, who believes. Well, the Bible talks about faith in quite different terms. The strength of the believer's faith doesn't seem to matter, according to the Scripture. A mustard seed's worth will do just fine. But faith cannot be two-faced. It's the desperate cry of a broken soul with no other hope. But all that matters is what's the object of our faith. Having faith in a mountain, or having faith in the stars, or having faith in something that I've, that I've formed with my own, my own hands, all that is a figment of my imagination. But having faith in Jesus transforms my life. So rest your soul in Jesus. In verses 13 and 14, we call to trust him, to rest in him for two things. First of all, rest in him, for he took God's curse that we deserved. We spoke earlier about God's curse upon those who fail to keep his law perfectly. That's not a passing thought. That's the clear teaching of the scripture. Adam sinned and incurred God's curse. He lost his innocence and he died spiritually and physically. God warned his covenant people if they turned away, he would curse them. And when they did, he utterly destroyed their land. They were carted off to Babylon to die. The prophets often warned of God's wrath about to be poured out because of their sin. Jesus himself warned of those who would face the curse on judgment day. He said, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The New Testament repeatedly tells of God's curse. The wages of sin is death. God's curse is very real. It hangs over the head of every sinner. But verse 13 says, Jesus took our curse upon himself in order to set us free. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us. In dying on the cross, Jesus substituted his life for ours. Our curse was transferred to him, and he paid the penalty of death which we deserve. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says the same thing. God made him who had no sin, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's justification. Be declared righteous. Verse 13 also refers to Jesus' work as redemption. Redemption is a slave market term. It means to pay the price to buy a slave in order to turn, it around, turn around and set him free. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross, paying the price of our redemption, taking the curse that we, that we deserved, paying for it with his life, paying our, buying our freedom from Satan's tyranny and God's curse. Paul says we know that's true because, look, the Bible says that the one who hangs on a tree, that's evidence that, he, that he's under curse. Of course, he was executed. That's why he's hanging on a tree. Paul's not saying that Jesus became guilty because he was, he was crucified on a cross. He's saying that Jesus being hung on a cross was evidence, using the Old Testament language, as evidence of what he did there. He became accursed for us. He took our curse on himself. So where does that leave us? Well, we can persist in our efforts to keep the law, inevitably continuing to sin, and building up an ever-increasing curse of judgment. Or we can acknowledge we'll never be good enough, abandon our hope of justifying ourselves, and rest our souls in Jesus, believing that he has taken our punishment and set us free. And secondly, Jesus not only bore a curse, he also secured for us all the blessings of God's covenant. The blessings of being a child of Abraham, an heir of God. The blessing of God's Holy Spirit given to those who are in Christ. Here God promises a place at the table to those who are in Christ, those resting, trusting in him alone. Here God extends the promise of his Holy Spirit to people of every nation. Even people like us out here in the corner of the country who, who rest in Jesus. These are not benefits we can earn or purchase. They have been purchased for us by our Savior. Now is ours to believe, to trust him, and rest in him. Throughout our lives, we all trust in something. We base the course of our life on something which we believe to be true and worthy. As we live our lives, we trust in something which gives us hope of success. When we're in trouble, we look to something which we believe will give us guidance and relief. When we fail and our hearts accuse us, we console ourselves with something. And finally, when we lie on our deathbed, realizing the end is near, that something we hope in faces its ultimate test. So the question is, what's that something? What do we believe to be so certain that we commit our lives to it and rest in it for our dying? 
And whatever it is, does it give us comfort sufficient for all the seasons of our living as well as the day of our dying? As the catechism asks, what is your comfort in life and in death? Well, if we're trying to earn God's approval to justify ourselves by keeping the law, we will have little comfort. We will hang on every word that tells us we're a success. We'll try to bolster our courage to try harder, for, we, for it will never be enough. We'll be quick to compare ourselves with others, trying to comfort our accusing conscience by saying others have failed even worse than we have. And when we lie on our deathbed, we will either boldly sustain the facade that everything is well with us, or we will be cast into despair knowing that in reality we're not ready for judgment. Oh, but when we trust in Jesus, we have the comfort we long for. Whether we're successful and important, or humbled and poor, we rejoice in the life God has given us, for our worth is not determined by our success or our wealth or our status. When others succeed more than we do, we can rejoice with them because God has blessed us. He's given us the life that he has for us. When we fail, when our hearts accuse us, we have an answer. Jesus has taken the curse that my sin deserves. My standing before God is not dependent on me being good enough. It's dependent on what Jesus has done. And I rest secure in the forgiveness and grace of my Savior. And when the day comes that we're looking death in the face, we can gather other believers around us and saying, Great is thy faithfulness. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Jesus loves me. This I know. And Lord, I'm coming home. For we have nothing to fear. Jesus' death and resurrection has removed the sting. Which was sin driven by the law. Oh dear people, can you honestly answer the catechism in the words that have been answered by so many believers throughout the ages? My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is the comfort of the person not seeking to justify himself, but the one resting in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, oh, we're so spring-loaded to a performance mentality, for that's the way the world works around us. And the gospel is hard for us, Lord, because we have to admit that we're sinners and we have to admit that we can't help ourselves and that all of our best efforts are not enough. 
and, and to rest on someone else. To, to, to die to ourself in order we might live. But give us a grace, Lord, to trust you. And refresh us with the gospel. For we now, never outgrow our need to know, our need to hear. That it's all about trusting you. It's not about earning our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.